Amen. All right, as usual, I'll ask for the three themes of Revelation. Who can do that for me? Uh, All right, the old Jerusalem's going down. New Jerusalem's going to get established. Good. Number two? The CB stands for and the land beast. And the third theme? Yeah, all right, we're going to focus on theme number one tonight, which is the old Israel going down. And we're going to see that there's a lot of judgment and there's going to be also a lot of gospel in there too. So let's get started now. I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. All right, the first thing we see is that the commentators disagree on who this angel is coming down out of heaven. Who do you think it is? Face like the sun, feet like pillars of fire. Sounds like Jesus to me. Revelation 1, 15a and 16b, his, talk about one like a son of man, that's Jesus, his feet were like fire, fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace. Feet, feet, fire, fire. His face was shining like the sun at midday. Face, face, sun, sun. So it seems to be reasonable to say that's Jesus, right? Unfortunately, that's a minority position of all the commentators I looked at and said, no, it can't be Jesus. And I'll tell you why. You know why? Because in a couple of verses, it says this strong angel is going to hold his hand up to heaven to swear. And Jesus wouldn't swear. That's the argument. <laughs> swear means to take an oath. That means cuss words. No cuss words. Of course Jesus ain't going to do that. But is he going to, like, you know, you go in the courtroom, you say, I place your hand on the Bible, pledge to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God. That's swearing. All right. Well, doesn't Hebrews 6.13 say that God swears because he could not swear by anyone higher? Swore by himself? Yeah, so that's not a problem. So I'm going to say that's Jesus. And we also see Jesus, the strong angel. He's clothed with a cloud. He's got a rainbow around his head. In Ezekiel 128, the appearance of the brilliant light all around was like that of a rainbow and a cloud on a rainy day. Now, that's a picture of God on his throne in the vision in Ezekiel. He has a rainbow and a cloud. That's divinity, all right? So, yeah, this is Jesus. So we go to verse 2. Revelation 10.2, and he had a little scroll, that's Jesus, a strong angel. Oh, and by the way, Jesus, what was Jesus called in the Old Testament? How about, remember when Jacob was wrestling somebody at the river Jabbok on his way back from Haran? He wrestled with the angel of Jehovah. Most everybody says that's Jesus, angel of Jehovah. Nobody has trouble with that. So, Jesus has a little scroll opened in his hand. He put his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Now, before we talk about what's in that little scroll, which is what everybody wants to know, let's look at this imagery of sea and land. What does sea stand for? And this symbol is fairly easy because nobody disagrees with it. Futurist, preterist, historicist, doesn't matter. Everybody knows that sea stands for what? Well, yeah, because the sea goes like that, but it's the chaos of the Gentile nations, the, the, the nations of the world, right? And the land, what's that a symbol of? The land of Israel, right. And we'll look in the Old Testament to see the imagery of the sea. I've got a string of quotes this long of how the sea refers to the Gentile nations, but I'm only going to use one here, Isaiah 5.26. He, that's God, raises a signal flag for the distant nations, that's the Gentile nations, and whistles for them from the ends of the earth. Look how quickly and swiftly they come. On that day, they, the distant nations, will roar over it, will roar over the land, like the roaring of the sea. So you have the idea of the Gentile nations come roaring into Israel to destroy it. 
when one looks at the land, the land of Israel, there will be darkness and distress, light will be obscured by clouds. So that one verse, or these two verses, have sea and land in them together, and it shows the typical Old Testament way of referring to sea and land. All right, so now we got Jesus. He's got left foot on the sea, right foot on the land. John is now not in heaven anymore looking in the throne room of God. He's come down to earth, and he's looking from the aspect of the planet earth like this, and he sees this big, huge angel, one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. Now, what does that mean? It means that whatever Jesus is doing here with this little scroll, it's going to encompass the whole world, man, sea, everywhere, okay? Oh, let me give you another quote about the sea. Revelation 17, 15, he, that's Jesus, said to me, John, the waters you saw where the prostitute was seated are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. Now, when you see that phrase, peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages, that's always the what? The Gentiles, the Gentile nations. All right, and water, same thing as seas, and this is the whore of Babylon here. We'll talk about that when we get there. But the point is that sea stands for the Gentile nations. Now, what's in that little scroll? Let's go to Revelation 10.3. And he, that's Jesus, the strong angel, cried out with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. Now, some of this imagery is easy. What does thunder stand for? Thunder. Judgment, that's it. That's what I was looking for. Very good. I think it was Emma, Autumn. Well, anyway, whoever it was, God bless you. That's right. So, peals of thunder, <laughs> judgment. Uh, now, Jesus cries out with a loud voice like when a lion roars. When a lion roars, that's very loud. A lion is very strong. So, this is a this is big deal here. A lot of judgment coming on. What does seven stand for? Yes, divine perfection. And, of course, now we're talking about divine perfectly, divinely perfect judgment. So again, we got the idea of judgment coming. And, and the theme here in Revelation 10, we're going to have judgment and we're going to have the kingdom being established. Old Jerusalem down, New Jerusalem up. Okay, now, John is reflecting language here in Psalm 29, verses 3 through 9. Now, when I say that, I don't mean to say that John just got the Old Testament and opened it up, and because he's a very creative storyteller, he writes the book of Revelation using the Old Testament. He saw this, but it was the same Holy Spirit that gave him the vision that inspired the psalmist. There's a connection between the old and the new. So in Psalm 29, we've got seven voices. We've got seven peals of thunders. thunder uttered their voices here in this passage of Psalm. We've got seven voices. I've got them numbered, and you will notice that every one of the voices is connected with thunder, and it's connected with judgment. Voice number one, the voice of the Lord is above the waters. The God of glory thunders, the Lord above vast waters. The Voice number two, the voice of the Lord in power. Voice number three, the voice of the Lord in splendor. Voice number four, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars, which of course is, shows us a uh, bodaciously big storm. Voice number five, the voice of the Lord flashes flames of fire. Again, judgment. Voice number six, the voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness, earthquakes. Judgment. Voice number seven, the voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the woodlands bare. Sounds like tornadoes. Judgment on the land, okay? So we're talking about here, Revelation 10.3, judgment. We still haven't discovered what's in that little scroll yet, okay? So we go to Revelation 10.4. When the seven peals of thunder had spoken... I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken, and do not write them. 
So Jesus tells John, well, I just told you some bad stuff. Seven, seven things that are bad, but I don't want you to write them down. I, well, he says, don't even write them. Seal it up. Now, of course, you can't seal up something you don't write. So he's speaking metaphorically. What he's saying is, don't tell anybody what I just told you. Now, it is amazing how many commentators will try to guess what the seven peals of thunder said. This is not in the little scroll, by the way. This is separate from the little scroll. When God himself told John, don't tell anybody what I just told you. And yet everybody tries to guess what's, what the seven peals of thunder said, which is absurd. So I'm not going to try to guess. But I will try to show you what this imagery of sealing up something, what does it mean? Well, we can... Go to Revelation 22.10, near the end of the book, and we read this. He, that's Jesus, said to me, John, don't seal the prophetic words of this book because the time is near. So Revelation is to be unsealed, but the seven peals of thunder are sealed. So the question is, is why? Why the difference? What does it mean to seal up something? You notice it has something to do with time. The time is near. The time of Revelation is near. This, of course, is a favorite Orthodox Preterist verse because it says that the words of this book are related to a time that is near. Not 2,000 plus years in the future, but near. Okay? So, don't seal means, hey, it's coming soon. Now, we read in Daniel 12.4, who was prophesying of exactly the same events, the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. Daniel says this, but you, Daniel, excuse me, God says to Daniel... But you, Daniel, keep these words secret and seal the book until the time of the end. That doesn't mean the end of the world. That means the end of the Jewish, uh, uh, the Old Testament Jewish order. Seal them up until then. Many will roam about and knowledge will increase. And he's, if you study Daniel 12, that's talking about 8070 also. So there, Daniel, since he was writing about 600 years earlier than 8070, he's supposed to seal the book because the time is not near for him. But my point here is the sealing of the book. So whatever's in here is judgment that is not going to happen soon. Now, you've all heard of, I guess you have, have you heard of hyper-preterist, heretical preterist? They say that everything happens in 8070, including the, the second coming or the final coming of Jesus, including the great white throne judgment of the living and the dead, of the Christians and the non-Christian dead, including Gog and Magog, including all the stuff that happens at the end of time, hyperpreters say, say it happens all in AD 70. Well, they don't. I mean, they do, but it's ridiculous. It's absurd, okay? But they're big out there. I mean, you get on the Internet, that's all you see is heretical preterists. You got, by the way, that's a good, I'm glad you brought that up. If you want to study this, you've got to be careful. You get on the Internet and you see all this stuff, and it might sound real good because a lot of their arguments are very good. The good, they're good arguments, but when they get to saying that Jesus has already come back in eighty seventy, that's absurd. Uh, the earth is still, the earth has been released from its bondage to decay in eighty seventy. That's absurd. Well, I, okay, but we're not going to get into it. Yeah, I know you, you got your head on right, but you got to be careful to make sure you're reading somebody that's orthodox. All right, so we don't know what's what, but the point is, is that there are some things that have not, are not going to happen in 8070. All this stuff I've been telling you about, the seals, the trumpets, the bold judgments, that all happens in 8070. But there's still some stuff that hadn't happened yet because they're sealed up 
for later, okay? All right, let's go to Revelation 10, 5. Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, that's Jesus, he lifted up his right hand to heaven. Now, I'm not going to do it again, but if I was in court, what do I do to swear? Lift up my right hand, right? Now, that's exactly how they did it back then. And in fact, in Deuteronomy 32, 40, God says, I, God, lift up my hand to heaven, and as I say, I live forever. He's swearing by himself because there's nobody higher to swear by. So Jesus is a witness here because he's lifting up his right hand to heaven. We see that in Revelation 1, 5, first part of the verse, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, he's called a witness. Revelation three fourteen, the amen, the faithful and true witness. Now, in the Old Testament, a witness did two things. The first thing he did is he testified to what he had seen, okay? Now, let's say he saw a murder. You have to convict with two or three witnesses. So let's say we got two witnesses, saw the murderer. So the murderer is arrested. He's tied up and he's thrown over a cliff. And he's lying down there. And now it's time to stone him to death. The Old Testament law said that certain people, only certain people were forced to drop the rock on the murderer to kill him, to execute him. Who were the people that dropped the rock? The witnesses. The witnesses. So a witness was not only somebody who saw, but it's somebody who executed judgment. Okay? And this is the idea here. Jesus is lifting up his right hand to heaven. He's about to swear. Revelation 10.6, Jesus swore by him, that's God who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it, and the earth and the things in it, and the sea and the things in it, that there will be delay no longer. In other words, we've gotten from the seal judgments. How, how strong a judgment were the seal judgments? One-fourth, one-third, or 100%? One-fourth, the seals. And next came the trumpets. What kind of judgments were they? One-third. And the bold judgments? 100%. And so basically Jesus is saying that lights out for you, Jerusalem. Time is over. The judgment's coming. Now, between the seals and the trumpets, remember we had an interlude. It goes seal one, two, three, four, five, six. And then when seal seven opened up, it would be seven trumpets. But before seal seven was opened by the Lamb, there was an interlude between seal six and seal seven. And in that interlude, something happened. There were 144,000 who had the seal of God on their forehead, remember? Right? So the point is, is that the seals of judgment, the trumpets of judgment, but in between, we're going to seal the believers so they're not wiped out. Now, we know that all the Christian Jews in Jerusalem were saved from getting killed because Jesus told them, when you see the army surrounding Jerusalem, flee. And when Cestius Gallus came in in 66 AD, the Christians in Jerusalem looked and saw the army that caused the abomination of desolation as they were about to desolate the land with their idolatry. But they couldn't flee because the zealots kept them in the city. So the zealots then chased Cestius Gallus, the Roman general, backed off, went to Beth Horon. The Christians, the zealots, came out of Jerusalem, went north, and they had a big battle. I just saw on on Wikipedia, it was one of the worst defeats the Roman army ever had by a rebellious province. 6,000 Romans were killed. So the zealots are jumping up and down with joy. Ha, the Messiah has delivered us. Well, when the Christians are sitting back there, they were held prisoner by the zealots before, and now they're free because the zealots were up there partying. So the Christians left, and they all went to Pella, which was across the Jordan River, roughly 40 miles or so to the northeast, 
and they were saved, okay? The seal on the forehead, that was between the seals and the trumpets, right? But now we are between the trumpets and the bowls. The same structure, we're going to have a, a protection of the believers, okay? So we'll see that in just a minute. Revelation 10, 7, But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished, as he preached to his servants the prophets. Now, we're in the interlude here. Chapter 10, chapter 11 is the interlude. Chapter 9 is trumpets, judgment, 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 judgment. When the bowls start flowing, judgment, judgment, judgment. Well, now we're going to have gospel, gospel, gospel. When the mystery of God is finished. The seventh angel is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished. Why? Because in order for the gospel to spread, the mystery of the gospel to spread, the old Jerusalem has to be destroyed. And so that's the idea here. Judgment in order that the gospel can go forth. Now, what's mystery? Now, in the, old, in the New Testament times, the mystery religions, these pagan religions, they talked about themselves, and they would call themselves mystery religions. Now, mystery was abracadabra, strange incantations, formula, crazy, esoteric religious teachings, and if you knew the mystery, you could be saved. Of course, you have to go to some kind of guru to learn the mystery. So the idea was mystery is something that the average person could never know. But Paul, the apostle, took that term mystery, and he changed it to where it's like an Agatha Christie novel. You watch the movie, and at the first, it's a mystery who done it. Who done it. And then as time goes on, what happens at the end of the novel? Find you find out who done it. Likewise, here, we find out the mystery of redemption. I, look, I checked several commentators about that. They, they describe the mystery as the plan of God's salvation, the plan of redemption, the gospel, you know, stuff like that. But that's basically what happened, because if you think about it, before Abraham, before the patriarchs, what did people know about salvation, about God's plan of redemption? Almost nothing. I mean, people were offering animals to take care of their sins out of a sense of guilt, I guess. That's not very much. And then when you get to Abraham's time, they did know justification by faith. And then by Moses' time, they had the, uh, the tabernacle. But those were types and shadows the mystery was not fully revealed. They knew Messiah was coming. They didn't know what he was going to do, who he was, where he was going to be. But now the mystery of God is finished. That means the new covenant is here. So again, this verse here is about the establishment of the new covenant on a, on a strong foundation as the old Israel is wiped out. Now let's look at Ephesians 3, 4 through 6. This is Paul this writing, by reading this, you're able to understand my insight about the mystery of the Messiah. Again, nobody knew exactly who the Messiah was. Remember those Old Testament prophets? They had to search the prophecies they had to see what they meant. You know, what does this mean? Well, Paul had insight into the mystery of the Messiah. This was not made known to people in other generations. It is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The, now, these are New Testament apostles and prophets. The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. So the gospel, one aspect of the mystery is that the Old Testament Jews and, the, and Gentiles, they're going to be merged together in one church. But basically, it's all through the gospel. So the mystery of God is finished. So the revelation of the gospel is now being proclaimed by his servants, the prophets. Now, who are these prophets? Are they Old Testament prophets or New Testament prophets? 
Well, the commentators split on that. But most of them, at least the ones I read, said, it's talking about the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament prophets. Because what did the Old Testament prophets, prophets prophesy about? Did they not prophesy toward Jesus? Sure. Isaiah 7, 14. You know, they prophesied about Jesus. Isaiah 55 and so forth. And now, the New Testament prophets, most people say that that's talking about the apostles. That, it, that John here is referring to apostles, not, not specifically New Testament prophets. They, they were New Testament prophets, but it's talking about the apostles too. So we'll just say that his servants reveal the mystery of the gospel. All right, let's back up a minute. So the point is, thunder, judgment's coming, but the mystery of God is finished because the gospel is now being getting ready to be preached worldwide because Old Testament Israel had to be destroyed I should say apostate Israel, had to be destroyed before the church could spread through the world. Now, talk about the seventh angel. Here it is right here, Revelation eleven fifteen, which is beyond where we're going to go tonight. But the seventh angel, remember, that's the, that's the angel that sets the bowls loose. The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. There's the new covenant. There's the establishment of the church, see? So we got trumpets. Getting ready to sound for those seven bowls. But hey, before that, there's big triumphant voices in heaven saying, Jesus is going to rule forever. All right, we go to Revelation 10, 8 through 10. Now the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. Now we haven't talked about what's in this little scroll yet, okay? He, that's... uh, all right, first of all, the voice that he heard from heaven, that's probably the same voice that, in, that, was in, that we read about in verse 4. forgot what he said now, but it's just a, a random voice. It doesn't really matter who it is, an angel of some sort. Go take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea. Now, that's Jesus. Okay, so one angel talks to John and says, John, go get the scroll. And get the scroll, and he said to me, take it and eat it. It will be bitter in your stomach, but it will be sweet as honey in your mouth. So you eat it sweet, it's down here, it's bitter. Then I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I ate it, my stomach became bitter. Now that, of course, sounds extremely weird, but if you look at the, in the Old Testament, and again, the way you interpret the book of Revelation is you go to the Old Testament, not the newspaper. We've got bitter and sweet. Here's Ezekiel 2. He's got a scroll. Verses 8 through 10. And you, son of man, listen to what I tell you. This is um, God speaking to Ezekiel. Son of man, here's Ezekiel. Listen to what I tell you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. That's the rebellious house of Israel. Ezekiel was in the 6th century B.C. or so, I think. Yeah, or 600 or 500 B.C. Open your mouth and eat what I'm giving you. So I looked and saw a hand reaching out to me, and there was a written scroll in it. When he unrolled it before me, it was written on the front and back. Words of lamentation, mourning, and woe were written on it. Now, he's supposed to eat this thing that's got all this stuff. Well, that's bitter, right? You eat judgment, basically. Well, first of all, why is, it, why is he said to eat it? What's, the, what's the, the symbolism of eating a scroll? It becomes a part of your being. When you eat something, you can't separate it from yourself. It's in your bloodstream. It's part of you. And that just says, I want you to Ezekiel, judgment, 
you know, you need to preach this judgment, but it's not academic, my friend. It's real. It's personal. It's, it's you that's speaking judgment. Drop down to chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, and we'll see the scroll become sweet. He, that's God, said to me, that's Ezekiel, son of man, eat the scroll. So I opened my mouth and he fed me the scroll. Son of man, I left something out, I should say, son of man, eat the scroll. So I ate it and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. So that is where the imagery comes from. Now let's go back to the scroll before I go to Romans 11. The scroll that John was supposed to eat, that the strong angel Jesus was going to hand him this scroll. He's supposed to eat it, and it's bitter, and it's sweet at the same time. What do you think that means? Well, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, it's, it's his nation that's getting destroyed, but it's bitter for the unbelieving Jews, and it's sweet for those who believe the gospel. Yeah. That's exactly right. It's bitter because it's judgment. We've been talking about judgment through here, and it's sweet because there are voices in heaven saying the kingdom of Christ is going to be all over the world. And it's exciting, yeah. So the fact that the old Jerusalem is going down, that should be something to excite the Christians and make them happy. Remember, they're persecuted and they're defeated. And this is supposed to be a book of conquering, uh, overcoming, not gloom and doom and black helicopters and nuclear bombs and all that. Oh, let me back up a minute here. This idea of the gospel being bitter and sweet, bitter to the unbelievers, and sweet to the believers. Think about it. When you were before you were a Christian, when you were unsaved, was the gospel sweet to you or bitter? Basically, it says you're going to hell. Is that sweet or bitter? bitter. You get saved. The wrath of God is gone. You're His friend instead of His enemy. You've got eternal life, and now the gospel is very sweet. All right. Paul, Romans eleven twenty two. Therefore, consider God's kindness and severity. Severity towards those who have fallen, that's bitter. But God's kindness towards you, that's sweet. All right? So last verse in Revelation 10. And I, John, was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Now, when you see peoples and nations and languages, that stands for Gentiles. We're going to get to the Gentiles. We've been talking mostly about old Israel, but we'll get to the Roman Empire. We'll which was the empire that had all of the Gentile nations in it at the time. We'll get to that as we go through the book of Revelation. So, chapter 10 can be summarized. The old Jerusalem's down, the new Jerusalem's up, which is theme number one. Any questions? Before I go to some applications here, the wrath of God is necessary to establish the grace of God. Old Jerusalem had to go down before new Jerusalem was established. We should never preach wrath without mercy. In the Middle Ages, I don't know how many of you have read medieval history. but I did that when I was in college. That was sort of my major. And I still read medieval history, European history. And it's nothing but wrath, wrath, wrath. The Middle Aged people were scared to death of going to hell. They would, their paintings showed demons in hell all the time. And they were always building these chapels so that perpetual offerings would go up to heaven to keep their souls out of purgatory. They were scared to death. They knew nothing about the love of Christ. But today, so that's bad, preaching wrath without mercy, but should we ever preach mercy without wrath? Like Rob Bell, Bell's Hell, that doesn't exist. One of my pet peeves. You know, if you say hell doesn't exist, that means God's not just and Jesus is a liar. That's the end of the story. Well, hell's difficult. I know hell's difficult. Of course it's difficult. But saying that there's no hell is difficult too. 
And read the book of Revelation. If you say that there's no wrath, how do you understand the book of Revelation? It's full of wrath. And it's the wrath of the lamb. Jesus, you know, little Jesus, meek and mild. All right, now let's do the next two verses of Revelation 11. Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. That's me, that's John. Somebody gave him a measuring rod, probably another angel. Somebody in the vision. So in the vision, he's supposed to measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Now those who worship in it are believers. What does measure stand for? Measure, when you measure something in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, it means to put a boundary around it to protect it. So it's not just figuring out how long it is in inches and feet. It's to protect that which is measured. Now we see this in Ezekiel 40 verse 3. This is a vision that Ezekiel had of the so-called ideal temple. It's not a temple that ever existed on earth, but it was a vision in his head, and it was a symbol of the New Covenant church. He, that's God, brought me, brought Ezekiel there, and I saw a man whose appearance was like bronze. That's probably another angel in that vision. With a linen cord and a measuring rod in his hand, he was standing by the gate. Drop down to Ezekiel 42 verse 15. When he, this man who looked like bronze, when he finished measuring inside the temple complex, he led me out by way of the gate that faced east and measured all around the complex. So here in Romans, Revelation 11.1, 1, we see John is supposed to measure the temple, and Ezekiel, Ezekiel was measuring the temple. Now, also Zechariah measured the temple in his vision, Zechariah 2, 1 and 2, and verses 4 and 5. I, that's Zechariah, looked up and saw a man with a measuring line in his hand. I asked, where are you going? He answered me, to measure Jerusalem to determine its width and length. Again, now here he's measuring the city. In Ezekiel's vision, he's measuring the temple. Same idea. And then another angel said to Zechariah, run and tell this young man, the young man who's measuring the city, Tell this young man, Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls because of the number of people and livestock in it. Now, the idea is, is because this man is measuring Jerusalem, we don't need a wall anymore around Jerusalem because the wall is for protection. But since we have the measurement around Jerusalem, no need for the wall anymore. And the people and the livestock in the city can survive. The declaration of the Lord, I will be a wall of fire around it and I will be the glory within it. So, the measure, so after the measurement was done, God says, I'm going to put a wall of fire around the city so nobody can get in. It's protection. And th- that, by the way, although it doesn't say precisely that's what measuring means, all the commentators say that's what it means. It means protection. So I think that's fairly non-controversial. Now let's look at the end of Revelation. We're looking at chapter 21 about the New Jerusalem. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod. That's an angel of some sort had a gold measuring rod to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city is laid out in a square. Its length and width are the same. He measured the city with rods at 12,000 stadia. Its length, width, and height are equal. So we have the New Jerusalem being measured. We have the temple of God where believers are worshiping in it. In Revelation 11.1, measure the temple of God. This is all symbolism to show that the people of God are protected. Protected. Now remember, in the interlude between the seals and the trumpets, we had protection, right? 144,000. Now we got people measured. That means they're protected. We go to verse 2. The angel continues, Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it. 
what has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. Now, the idea is the measurement is for the people of God. They're protected. They're not going to be destroyed in this coming bold judgment or any judgment. They're not going to be protected. Now, the imagery is of the Old Testament temple. If you recall, you have the Holy of Holies, then you got the holy place, and then you got the outer, and you got several courts. But then the outer court was the court of the nations, the court of the Gentiles. All right. The idea is, if you were an Old Testament Jew, you could go inside that temple and not a problem, as long as you followed the rules. There's no problem. But the Gentiles weren't allowed in. But now, what's going to happen is the court for the Gentiles is going to be run over by the Romans, and the apostate Jews are going to be in the place of the Romans. They're going to be out there, and they can't get in with the people who are worshiping in the temple because the New Testament temple is not for people who don't believe. So we got protection inside the temple, which is measured, but outside the temple there's no protection, and then the imagery switches to the court of the nations, given to the nations where the Gentiles are, and what's the empire that contains all the nations? Roman Empire. And what did the Roman Empire do in the Jewish war that came in in AD 66? They tread underfoot the holy city, that's Jerusalem, for how long? 66 to 70, three and a half years. How long is 42 months? Three and a half years. 12, 12, 12 is 36, and then half a year is 6, so that's 42. 42 months, okay? Now Jesus predicted this in Luke 21, 24, Luke's version of the Olivet Discourse. He said, they will fall by the edge of the sword, talking about Jews, the Jews in Jerusalem, will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive into all the nations. Now that absolutely happened if you read Josephus, the Jews who survived the burning of the city in August of 70 A.D., they were sold into slavery by the Romans. Led captive into all the nations. Jesus predicted it right down to the... You know, a lot of people say that Jesus' prediction of what happened in AD 70 is one of the church's best apologetic weapons it ever had because he predicted it right down to the T. And yet we throw it away today. We say, no, that's referring to 2,000 plus years in the future. And it's really a shame. He predicted it. And Jesus said, Jerusalem will be trampled by the Gentiles. Tread under the foot of the holy city. You see the parallel there? Until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Times of the Gentiles are that 42 months, that three and a half years that Rome trampled on Jerusalem. And in the Luke's version, a lot of times we look at the Matthew 24 and forget to look at Luke 21. In Luke 21, when he says, they're going to throw up an embankment around your city. Cestius Gallus threw up an embankment around the city. And then he says, when you see the abomination of desolation which surrounds the city, then flee the city. And that exactly happened? I'm telling you, that's when I started believing in Orthodox Preterism. When I read Josephus about Cestius Gallus and the Jews that went to Pella, and when I read this in the Olivet Discourse, I said, that's slam dunk. That, that did it for me. And the times of the Gentiles, oh, I love seeing people speculate about, what's the time of the Gentiles? It's three and a half years when the Romans trampled down the Holy City. That's what it is. Nothing more, nothing less. All right. Now, let's look at this symbolism of three and a half years. In the book of Revelation, there's other ways of expressing it. It can be 42 months. We just read that. It can be 1,260 days. Now, a year was 360 days. Don't ask me why it's not 365. I don't know. But 360, if you take 360, multiply times three and a half, you end up with 1,260 days. All right? Also... Sometimes in the book of Revelation, three and a half years is expressed this way. Times, a time is a year, okay? Times, that's two years. Time, 
three years. At half a time, three and a half years. That makes sense? Okay. What's the symbolism of it? It's a period, a limited period of triumphant wickedness, apostasy, and judgment. Seven is the holy number. Seven symbolizes perfection. Three and a half is halfway to perfection, which is just another way of saying bad, bad stuff. Now, for example, I've got some scriptures. I don't know if I want to go through them. Let's see. Yeah, let's, let's look at some of these. Well, first of all, we got 42 months, holy cities trampled by the Roman Empire, the nations. We just looked at that in Revelation 11 too. But how about this? The woman who's nourished in the wilderness. Now, this is a sneak peek into the future. A couple of weeks, we'll get to it. The woman that fled into the wilderness, that's the, that's the Christians who fled Jerusalem and went to Pella. She had a place prepared for God to be fed there for 1,260 days. That's three and a half years. Well, isn't that interesting? The Christian Jews who fled Jerusalem stayed in Pella for three and a half years while the holy city was being trampled down by the Roman armies for three and a half years. The same period of time except different places. Okay, This is all predicted by John in the book of Revelation. Revelation 12, 14. The woman, that's, that's the church, was given two, excuse me, not the church, that's the Christians escaping from Jerusalem, going to Pella. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she could fly from the serpent's presence, that's the devil's presence, to her place in the wilderness, that would be Pella, where she was fed for a time, times, and half a time. Three and a half years, sat in Pella, they didn't get killed, they weren't destroyed, they were sealed, they were measured, they were protected. Now let's look at this idea of three and a half years outside the book of Revelation and the idea that the three and a half years shows judgment. Daniel 12, 7, And I heard the man clothed in linen. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things will be finished. This is why I was saying Daniel 12 refers to 8070, because you got the shattering of the holy people. They were called holy. They weren't actually holy, but that was their name. They were shattered at the end of that three and a half years. The Romans came in at the end of the Jewish war. They were gone. They were shattered. And also in James 5, 17, James says, Elijah prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. A drought that last three years and six months, that's judgment. That's bad business. So you see three and a half, think, judgment, well, not, not always judgment. The woman was protected for three and a half years during the time of judgment on Jerusalem. I'm finished. No, I didn't. No, I didn't. That's what the next eight minutes were for. I forgot. All right, what do you think? After all what I said, what do you think was in that little scroll, the one that he ate? Judgment is bitter and the sweet is, is the sweet, is the gospel. That's, that's what it is. Well, it's the judgment on Israel and the gospel, too. Because it's bitter and sweet. It's both. Anybody else got anything? All right, then. Let me pray. Lord God, I do come before you, Lord, and I pray that we will hold in our, our hearts and our minds, Lord, that even though the world has gone crazy and has always been crazy because of our sin, mankind's sin, that we are your children, we are your church, we are your bride, and like any husband would protect his wife, you're going to protect your bride, and that whatever judgment falls on this earth or on any place on this earth, that your church will be protected. I pray that we will not be depressed about the, the rank rebellion against your holy name that's happening all across Western, the Western world and in America. 
I pray that we would maintain our faith, that we would stay faithful, and that we would be encouraged by the example of these seven churches that had to undergo their horrible persecution. They were encouraged by the book of Revelation, Lord. I pray that we will be encouraged too, that we will not read that book with fear like so many Christians do, but that we'll be encouraged and to remember that your kingdom, your kingdom over every tongue and tribe and peoples and nations, your kingdom is being established and being worked out since these horrible events around AD 70. Since all that happened, your church has just kept right on spreading. Until now, we're all over the world and we're still spreading. And I pray that it will continue and continue faster, Lord. Thank you for these uh, wonderful Christians here that are hungry for you and hungry for your kingdom, hungry for your gospel. I pray that you would bless them in their efforts to spread the gospel. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was produced by the New Testament Reformation Fellowship, reforming today's church with New Testament church practices. Permission is hereby granted for you to reproduce this message. You can find us on the web at www.ntrf.org. May God bless you as you seek to follow Him in complete obedience to His Word. May your faith in the Lord Jesus be strengthened and your daily walk with Him deepened.